Good morning. Good to see you again. And if you were here last week, you would have heard the opening talk in this series of the Trinity, and you may have thought, gosh, that's a bit hard to understand. And that's exactly what I thought. (laughs) Because there's nothing harder for a preacher than to preach on the Trinity, and many people avoid it, um, because it's the greatest mystery in the universe and beyond the universe. One of the things that we sometimes miss out on in the modern world is a sense of wonder and a sense of awe. That word awe has been slightly changed in its meaning in modern language. A sense of smallness in the, in the light of something much bigger. Do you ever get that feeling? In a fast-moving world with images coming at you left, right and centre, the pressure of work and life, social media, the bombardment of time, deadlines, pushing you forward, we can have our head down so much of the time. But one of the most important things for us as humans is to have times when we're not under that pressure. Some people call it holidays, but then they come back from the holiday and it looks like just another type of pressure. But the moments that I treasure most are the moments when suddenly you're caught by surprise by a certain greatness which you'd never really thought about before. This summer I happened to be in Zambia on a working trip with School of Leadership at the time when the moon was eclipsed. Do you remember that? This summer with that strange red effect across the moon. And on that particular day, here in the UK, it was cloudy, I'm told. But out in Zambia, it was absolutely bright. And my friend who I was staying with said to me at the particular time, come outside. And so the two of us just stood there in the bright open African night sky with all the insects and all the, all the African kind of noises going on in the background. And we just looked up. There was just two of us, no one else in sight, in quite a remote location. And I just looked up into the heavens. And there were moments of silence. We didn't really know what to say. As we saw this strange eclipse and some other planets, very vivid. And I did what every good Westerner does. I got my camera out. And I took a few very feeble photos, which I look at now. And as so often happens with photos, they don't really capture it. And I suddenly felt so small in the context of the universe. And I'm only looking at the nearest planet and I still feel small. Ever had a moment like that? A moment when you see a newborn baby for the first time. My wife Jane helped me understand midwifery and childbirth through her job in the past. But the actual experience can be quite overwhelming. Something great here, so great, so much greater than the components and the reality and the background and the process. Something's happened, a new life has come. We can't really explain it. It captures our imagination. A few years ago, I was privileged (coughs) with uh, James Beardle, who's here this morning, to borrow a flat of some friend. French Alps, which had a little balcony, and from the balcony we could look and see the highest mountain in Europe, Mont Blanc. 
we, we were there for a week. We weren't climbing it. We were just pottering around in the area. But we looked at it for a whole week from the balcony. Well, James spent a lot of time there. Mind you, he fell asleep very often. <laughs> and the light and the shade changes. The clouds come and go. The mood of the mountain changes. Sometimes it seems sinister and dark. Sometimes it seems bright because the sun is behind it. And you're captured into something greater than yourself. Ever had that kind of feeling? I wonder what it is that gives you that feeling. It might not be any of those things. But there's something in the human psyche and and life which is important to capture, which is a sense of grandeur, beauty, mystery, beyond our common experience. And the way we encounter that is through sparkling, powerful aspects of the created world. But all of that pales into insignificance compared with the experience of John on the island of Patmos. He was in prison and suddenly he had an astonishing extended vision of heavenly events which is now written in the book of Revelation. And you can read it. And It has a number of different phases and at the beginning of chapter 4, having seen a vision of Jesus and having heard some things he needs to write down to seven different churches, suddenly a voice says to him, come up here to the heavens and see what's going to take place later on beyond these events. Beginning of chapter 4 and chapter 5, John has an experience that transcends the experiences I've described by a multitude of endless numbers because he sees, as none of us have seen, the heavenly glory of God. Three in one and one in three. He sees a throne and he sees someone sitting on the throne and he describes this in terms of light and jewels, and power. He sees the Holy Spirit described as the sevenfold spirit. He doesn't really know quite what words to put to that. Then he sees on the throne also uh, with the, uh, the, the person who's obviously God the Father. He sees another person who he describes as a lamb and as a lion. And so he's caught up in this world of something beyond his imagination and he's struggling for words. We struggle for words with the Trinity of God. Did you struggle last week? Some of you struggled. You went away thinking, wow. And I went away thinking, wow. Did I understand what I even said? I wasn't sure I fully did. Because I'm trying to describe something that is the greatest reality of all, that the eternal, everlasting, wonderful God is in three persons, all of whom are God, 
but they're separate persons and they're all equally God and they're all equally personal and that God has existed before any creation and will exist when this world has been wrapped up and a new one has been brought into being. And he never had a beginning. And he never had an end. And he is love. That's a tough one to understand. And so we landed last week with three statements, three fundamental truths. They're coming up on the screen. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. But, and this is the mystery, there's only one God. The deity of Jesus and the Father and the Spirit is exactly the same essence. It's not three gods in an alliance, it's three persons in one God. And then we use the little diagram, which I'll just show you briefly now, to describe this. And in this diagram, in terms of personhood, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. But in terms of deity or Godhood, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Now today we move on. Because today our topic is the mission of the Trinity. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. I've got one passage, just a short one, which we're going to spend a few minutes on. It's the beginning of the book of Hebrews. And here the writer begins to unpack some of the mysteries of God on mission. God saving the world. And in the first three verses, there are some powerful statements, and I'm just going to comment briefly on some of these statements. Let me read it through, first of all. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And I'm just going to go through phrase by phrase, just just make a very brief comment on what is said here, because it illustrates this mission beautifully. Let's just start with the first phrase. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in various ways. This is the Old Testament. This is the Jewish ancestors. This is a book to Jews. God said a lot of things to us already, said the writer. He's told us about creation. He's told us about the fall. He's told us about the call of Israel. He's told us that we need salvation. He told us that we need atonement. He's told us that we need a Messiah. He's promised that a Messiah will come. That's all happened in the Old Testament. Next phrase. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Aha. This is the crunch. This is the mission of the Trinity. It was always intended from eternity. God always knew what he was going to do. But it only happened when Jesus arrived that that mission became crystal clear to humanity. The Trinity is on the move. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are on the move to define and bring about the salvation that brings you to this room today. Do you believe that? 
And it's classically defined for us in John 3.16. I'll read occasional verses as we keep this main text up. You don't need to turn to them. But it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Now here's an interesting point. The Father sent the Son. The Son did not send the Father. It's not a reversible statement. The Father initiated the process and he sent his Son. The persons of the Trinity are absolutely distinct. There are three persons and they have a different function in the process. We need to remember you can't just mesh God into just one being and say there's a God out there somewhere as religious people generally do and Jesus was some kind of a prophet and the Holy Spirit was some kind of a force these are three persons on a mission and in that mission there was a moment when the Father sent the Son he had the initiative in the relationship of the Trinity and he sent the Son not only that he sent the Spirit to empower Jesus at his baptism, as we looked at last week. And that relationship between Jesus and the Father didn't change when he came to the earth. They still got the same intimate relationship. The location changed, the context changed. Humanity made it a tough journey for Jesus. But his relationship with his Father, that perfect relationship, continued on earth. And he speaks of it frequently. Now, a little bit later in Hebrews, just quickly to refer to this, when Jesus came to die, this is a very interesting point, Hebrews 9 verse 14. If you're interested in this, you can follow this up and reflect on this. Speaking of Jesus' salvation, the same writer says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living God? In that one verse about salvation you have Jesus offering himself you have him doing it through the power of the spirit and making salvation because the father required through his justice that the price must be paid and so the trinity is involved in that great act of salvation does that make any sense to you? every person of the trinity is equally involved in that process but in different ways in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Next phrase, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Now there's just a little aside. The writer says, oh, by the way, Jesus didn't just come to die for your sins. He actually made the world in the first place. So it's very clear in scriptures that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit collaborated in the creation of the cosmos. They all have their place. So we worship Jesus as creator and as redeemer. Wow. And the next phrase, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his wonderful word. Wow, there's a lot of things packed into there. We have beheld his glory, says John. 
the glory of the one and only Son of the Father. So whenever that sense of glory was present in Jesus' life, it was the glory of God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he exactly represented the Father's will and the Father's character. Isn't that wonderful? People say, how do we know God? What kind of God is he out there? It's all mysterious, it's all a vacuum, it's all unseen, it's all unspoken. How do we define who that God is? Is he capricious, is he kind, is he loving, is he tough? Is he going to judge me or isn't he? Well, the only way we can define that question absolutely and clearly is by looking at Jesus. And that's the distinction of the Christian faith. We look at Jesus and we can say absolutely unambiguously he is representing the Father. He represents the Father when he says, I forgive you. He represents the Father when he says, your sins are healed. He represents the Father when he warns people to avoid judgment. He represents the Father when he cries tears of compassion for people. He represents the Father when he touches the leper. He represents the Father when he calls the unpopular tax collector. He represents the Father when he casts out evil spirits out of people's lives. Isn't this a wonderful thing? Because we believe in the Trinity, and this is the thing I really want to get home to, because we believe in the Trinity, when we see the actions and the attitudes and the approach of Jesus to anything, we can confidently say, this is a representation of God the Father. You can't say that about any single human being. No prophet, no church leader, no saint. We're in a different category. We have the brokenness of sin within us. Myself, very definitely included. But when we look at Jesus, there's no taint. There's no half-truths. There's no compromise. There's no flattery. What he says he means. By the way, that's not always comfortable. But this is a Trinitarian truth. The exact representation of the Father. And therefore the exact representation of the Holy Spirit as well. Because they're one. Oh, and just a little aside. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Did you notice that? Okay, so he created it, and by the way, it wouldn't still work unless he was still sustaining it. Uh, How many reasons have we got to worship Jesus? The list goes on and on. He created, he sustained, he came, he saved, he redeemed, he rose again, he ascended, he's coming back, he's called you, you're written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you've got enough reasons to worship Jesus? He's in every part of the process. So we lift him up. Finally, after he'd provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
This is the ascension. And this is what John saw in Revelation 4 and 5, which we haven't got time to go to now. He saw how Jesus is now. And one of the great things about thinking about the Trinity is to have in your mind the image of the glorified Jesus alongside the image of the human earthly Jesus. It's wonderful to think of Jesus on the Emmaus Road, walking to Jerusalem, in the synagogue of Capernaum, at home in Nazareth with his mum and his brothers and sisters, on the cross, etc. But one of the things that really deepens our worship is if we think of where Jesus is now. He's in the highest place of authority in heaven, waiting to return to complete the work that he started when he first came. Now, here we are. We're living the Christian life. There's bumps on the road. We referred to quite a few of them earlier on through those powerful prophetic words. Life is complex. Life is difficult. We don't always get our act together. We're not always feeling good. But underneath all those things are some great realities. first one is that when Jesus went to heaven uh, and he ascended the Holy Spirit was sent John 15 verse 26 describes this process when the advocate or the comforter or the Holy Spirit comes whom I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father he will testify about me and so here we have an amazing truth in the Trinity the Father sent the Son and he came to be born as a man. But when he returned, the Father authorized the Son through a joint plan to send the Spirit. The Spirit is described sometimes in Scripture as coming from the Father, sometimes it's coming from the Son and sometimes it's coming from both of them. How about that for unity? Everything God does the three persons are equally committed to and involved in, but with different roles. So the Father and the Son conferred and said, the Spirit will be poured out. And that's the reality we live in to this day. So our experience of the Trinity is we sometimes feel the saving work of Jesus very keenly especially when we're thinking of forgiveness for ourselves. Sometimes we feel the indwelling presence of the Spirit very keenly when we're close to God or seeking Him or praying. And sometimes we feel a profound relationship with the Father as the primary thing. All those things are true. All those things are complementary. All those things are important. The living God is on a mission. So here's three things we can say about the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit on this mission. Number one, the three persons of the Godhead have different roles. The Father initiates and coordinates the mission, the Son is the agent of salvation and the Spirit comes to enact salvation in our lives. It's wonderful. 
Human beings are happiest generally when we're in really good functioning teams. We're doing things together. And I do this, you do that, and it fits together. That's when we generally come alive to the most because we have our bit to contribute but we need other people's bit and if it fits together well and if it's well organised it works well. Now obviously if you're a young mum and you take your three young children into the kitchen to make a loaf of bread it's not always that simple. And our own brokenness means that as we function together at work or at home or in any other context it can be really quite complicated but in the case of the Holy Trinity Father, Son and Spirit, there's never any complication of competition or difficulty of people finding their role or their place. They're all equally committed to the same end. And by the way, that end includes your salvation. At a personal level. It's generic, it's universal, but it's also incredibly personal. God so loved the world that he sent his son. And the second point, the the will of the three persons of the Godhead is absolutely united and one in the mission of salvation. But you may say, as somebody did say last week, but what about Jesus in Gethsemane? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus in Gethsemane. Let me explain that as best I can. I'm not saying I fully understand it. When he was in Gethsemane facing suffering, his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, according to his own words, and he said, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What does that mean? Was Jesus in his humanity, fighting against the Father's will. Well, Scripture teaches that Jesus has both a divine and a human will. And his divine will is always the same as the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's what his divinity means. We'll talk about that more in another talk. But it tells us at a human level something particular. I'm going to read something here because I want to express this accurately. I don't normally read full sentences from my notes, but this is a very important point. His prayer comes from within his human will, which always agreed with the divine will and the will of the Father, but which came to that agreement through the tough experiences of life. Jesus always obeyed, but there was a moment of choice with each new experience. This was the moment where Jesus in his humanity, knowing the human cost of what was about to happen, had to make a new choice he hadn't made before because the moment hadn't arrived. And so what he's praying to his father is an expression of the vulnerability of his humanity. And if we just had that scripture alone we might wonder what it really means. But fortunately, the Bible tends to interpret itself by reference to different passages. And there is a beautiful explanation of this in Hebrews, which I'm going to read to you. Hebrews 5, verse 7. This is one of the most moving passages in the whole New Testament. 
And it gives us an insight into this particular dimension of the Trinity on mission. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, Hebrews 5 verse 7, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, his father. And he was heard because of his reverend submission. Next verse gives the key. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now what this says is that the human obedience of Jesus rolled out step by step through his life. Every day in his humanity he had to choose the Father's will. From infancy and consciousness, through adolescence, through his adult life, through all the years of his ministry. And every single time he chose the will of his Father. Every single choice was the right choice. But this choice, this moment in Gethsemane, was by far the toughest choice. And the writer of Hebrews explains what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane by saying that he learned obedience from what he suffered. So he reflected on the human cost. If only I could be spared from this, but not in any sense of rebellion because he quickly and immediately said, I will do the will of my Father. And when it says he became perfect, it means he made every decision perfectly throughout his whole life. And the humanity of Jesus aligned itself perfectly with the deity of Jesus and the will of the Father. Now that's a very mysterious reality, isn't it? I'm trying to capture it for you. But it was a human journey that Jesus felt like you feel when you have to make a choice. Will I go this way or that way? And we make the wrong choice very often. But the extraordinary thing about Jesus is he never made the wrong choice. But it was still a real human experience to make that choice, which is what Gethsemane captures. There was a feeling, there was an alternative. But he was made perfect through his obedience. And so, in conclusion, what about the presence of God now? Here's another mystery. Well, in one sense, God's everywhere. And that's true. But he's specially, personally present and manifest in particular ways and places. And so as we are on earth now, we can honestly say, the Father is in heaven. John saw him, John chapter 4. And so when you pray the Lord's Prayer, what's the first phrase? 
Our Father in heaven. We're defining his primary manifest presence. And we can say the same of Jesus because he ascended right back to the right hand of the Father. That's where Jesus is. But where's the primary manifest presence of the Holy Spirit? On earth. Here. Where his people gather. And the Spirit's work is always to point us to Jesus and the Father. So we keep thinking about Jesus and the Father when the Spirit is present. He keeps pointing us, glorifying Jesus, lifting him up. So you start singing a song and suddenly you feel that lift inside you think, oh, it's real. Guess what's happening? The Holy Spirit's doing something inside you. Father in heaven, Son, right hand of the Father in glory, waiting to return in a manifest and visible and authoritative way in the second coming, that's another story, and the Spirit here. And guess what? The mission goes on. And on. And on. And on. From one generation to another. The Spirit's activity is not compromised or reduced because of the passing of the time. The Father doesn't say to the Son, hey, this is, this is a bit of a boring mission, let's just dial it all down. Far from it. The excitement in heaven is increasing as the anticipation of Christ's return becomes closer. And the activity of the Spirit is increasing on the earth towards that great moment. And so, folks, this mission of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, became obvious to humanity when Jesus arrived. Has continued energetically for 2,000 years, despite the incredible failures and mistakes of the church. And will continue until that mission is complete. And so I worship him for that. And I'm so grateful that the Spirit is here and making clear to us what the Father intended and initiated, what the Son fulfilled and what we can experience in our lives. Thank goodness for these great things because life is so bumpy. The real life of, you know, there's so many complexities in our lives and sometimes we just need to pause and see the bigger picture. And this is a moment to pause and see the bigger picture. In a minute I'm going to invite the musicians up and we're going to sing this great song which is going to come up on the screen. I'd like to just put the words up first of all. I've chosen this to reflect my feelings at this point. Melody Green and Keith Green. There is a Redeemer. Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, O for sinners slain. Third verse. This is what I want to just... Um, I did the chorus actually. Thank you, O my Father. Listen to this. 
This captures this talk. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Let's have the musicians, please. And let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for some of these mysteries that are hard to understand, but so wonderful when we grasp them. And we come to you and we worship you today. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your great mission.